What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary and every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Bill Barr says we'll see the Mueller report within a week. Maybe. And how much of it will we see? What do you say, folks? Here we go on a Wednesday. Are you ready? <laughs> ready or not. Here we go on a Wednesday, April 10. It is the Bill Press Show. We're uh, going to tell you what's going on over the next two hours uh, with a good lineup of guests. And with all of you, we'll take a uh, quick run through the news of the day, the headlines of the day, the latest breaking news. Lots of it on Capitol Hill yesterday. Some very interesting hearings uh, with uh, Attorney General William Barr uh, on the hot seats. Uh, also, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Uh, and then a uh, pretty wild hearing on white nationalism, which the Republicans tried to scuttle and made fools of themselves. Uh, meanwhile, down at the White House, Donald Trump still defending his border policies, even though the result of his hardline policies, his harsh rhetoric, and all the toughness that he's been trying to show at the border has resulted in uh, a record number of arrests at the border last month, the, uh, the highest number of people who were apprehended in the last 10, in any one month, in the last 10 years. Maybe Donald Trump's approach is not working. Anyhow, lots and lots to talk about, including that big one, and lots you're going to want to comment on. So get ready to send us your comments on Twitter, as always, at BP Show, at BP Show. We will dive right in, cover it all, but first. This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. It was a big night last night in the NBA. We said farewell to two legendary basketball players. First of all, Dirk Nowitzki from the Dallas Mavericks made it official. He is going to retire at the end of the season. It was his last home game last night. 
They beat the Suns 120-109. He scored over 30 points, which is the first time he's done that since 2016. Mm. Uh, Just absolutely amazing uh, basketball player. Also, uh, over in the Eastern Conference for the Miami Heat, Dwayne Wade played his last home game. They sent him off in style, including a farewell from someone you may recognize. D. Wade, congratulations on a great run. Now, I know what you're going through because saying goodbye to a career that you love is never easy. I've been there. In my case, though, I didn't really have a choice. You know, my knees were shot, so I had to give up basketball forever. (laughs) You, on the other end, look like you're still hooping out there. He's right. Dwayne Wade had a great season this season. He was still playing excellent basketball, but he says he's going to step away. It was really interesting about Dwayne Wade walking away from basketball uh, he gave an interview earlier this week or the end of last week where they said, what are you going to do now? And he goes, yeah. I need to go to therapy. <laughs> I need to go to therapy and I need to figure out what I'm going to do because basketball oh. has been my life for yeah. so long. Not therapy, not physical therapy. Not physical therapy. Oh, yeah. yeah, he needs yeah. to go to actually talk to a therapist and figure out what he's going to do with his life now. Talk which show, is Talk show host. <laughs> he should be a talk show host. Run yeah. for office. Yeah, sure. Politics. Sure. Yeah. It worked for Kevin Johnson uh, in Sacramento, mayor of Sacramento. He went from the NBA to, to politics. Yeah, there you go. Let's so. do it. D. Wade, mayor of Miami, maybe? Uh, okay, so uh, there's a new study out that says if you eat raw garlic, it could help prevent age-related memory loss that a lot of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients uh, suffer from. They say that there's a natural compound found in garlic called allyl sulfide. That improves the health of bacteria in the gut, which also improves cognitive health in the elderly. So, I'm not a huge fan of raw garlic, but they say that if you cook it, you lose this compound. Uh, So, eating raw garlic could actually be very beneficial for you. Uh, Two quick comments. Number one, there's a whole new trend now to talk about food that's really good for you. Not just a healthy diet, but I mean, certain organs need right yeah. also i eat a lot of raw garlic in russia Ooh. <laughs> this is the bill press show the attorney general says um yeah he's going to um he's going to try to defend that suit that would kill the entire affordable care act he doesn't think it's necessarily the best suit, but that's what Donald Trump wants to do. So I'm just doing my job, he told Congress yesterday. Yeah, uh, We've heard that before, haven't we? Hello, everybody. What do you say? Is that really the man we want as attorney general? It is the Bill Press Show on a Wednesday, Wednesday, April 10. Great to see you today. Good to have you on board. we got lots to talk about. A lot of different, different directions of the news today. No one great big huge story, but a lot going on on Capitol Hill yesterday with some very interesting hearings with the Attorney General, the uh, Treasury Secretary, um, a testimony about white nationalism that got a little out of hand yesterday. Um, But at any rate, Will and Donald Trump down at the White House uh, still going on and on about family separation, blaming it all on uh, Barack Obama. God, he's been there how long so far? He's still blaming everything on Barack Obama. Whatever has been taking place, wherever it's taking place, we'll bring you up to date on the news of the day, and you tell us what it all means to you. We're coming to you live 
on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. If you're joining us online, great to see you online. We're joining you, of course, on television nationwide, coast to coast on Free Speech TV, all part of the DirecTV network, and on the radio statewide in Indiana, Indiana Talks and Chicago. Here we are with you on the big progressive voice of Chicago, WCPT. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget, send us your comments, as always, on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. (laughs) I just got to tell you, my favorite little story of the day, uh, our friend uh, Daniel Lippman from Politico was in the studio with us yesterday um, uh, after he left the show uh, later yesterday afternoon, posted a piece on uh, Politico uh, that I hadn't seen this anecdote before. Uh, Donald Trump had some advice for George Washington. Um, so apparently, this is just coming out. Back in April uh, 20, this says a lot about Donald Trump. I'll tell you this whole story, you know what it means. This is back in April 2018 when Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, was here with his wife, and uh, the two couples, Melania and Donald, Emmanuel and Brigitte, I think her name is, whatever, went down to Mount Vernon, and they had a special tour of Mount Vernon. And Donald Trump's comments to the to comment to the director of the whole Mount Vernon property when he learned and realized that Mount Vernon was not named, that George Washington didn't name Mount Vernon after himself, and that actually he owned all this property in Northern Virginia, and he didn't name any of those properties, branches, farms, after himself. That's what you're supposed to do when you own property. Like you name Donald it after Trump. yourself. Yeah. Donald Trump's comment was, he made a big mistake yeah. by not naming everything after himself because he said, unless you name it after yourself, Nobody's going to remember you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. George, that, George, what's his name? The first that, president of the United States? I yeah. forget the guy's name. Doesn't it say a lot about Donald Trump? It's perfect. It is perfect. It's the perfectly stupid thing that he would say. Uh, and the director pointed out, well, there is Washington, D.C., which is the capital of the United States. And, and Trump basically goes, oh, that's right. Uh, you know, it's you know if you go to if you, you know, and he says wait, it's amazing. Nobody's going to remember George Washington. No. Let me tell you something. They're going to remember George Washington a lot longer than they're going to remember Donald Trump. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, one of the things they have at Mount Vernon. Hey George, too bad you're such a dunce. You didn't name yeah Mount Vernon. George who? <laughs> yeah. One of the things they have at Mount Vernon is they have this graphic and they show all the different uh, cities and municipalities and things that are named after, after George Washington. Washington. <laughs> no, like nothing, nobody else, no other figure in American history has more things named after them than George Washington. No, no, no nobody remembers him because he didn't name Mount Vernon after himself. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> nobody was going to remember you. I thought that was just a. A great story. I just, you know, not the biggest news story of the day, but it was my favorite. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, remember that. There he is. Um, by the way, you can't, I, I was just thinking, I, I, the first person who tries to name, like, a school after Donald Trump should be just run out of office. Riot. I'm going to riot. Oh, yeah. They, 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 don't, don't tell me they're going to do that. Yes, indeed, a busy day on Capitol Hill yesterday. Uh, the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the Attorney General, Bill Barr, uh, called uh, called up. It was actually a, a budget committee hearing uh, to, to talk about the, the, the appropriation for the Department of Justice. 
But, of course, I got into a lot of policy stuff. That's all they wanted to talk about. Uh, and questions about the Mueller report, I heard we heard the attorney general speaking out for the first time. Um, first of all, did he, uh, we know, again, all we've seen of the Mueller report is the four-page summary that was written by and released by the attorney general. Uh, he Did Robert Mueller have anything to do with the writing of that four-page summary, Barr admits, nope. Although we offered him the opportunity to review it before we sent it out, and he declined that. So ask him if you want to see it. And, you know, Mueller said, no, my job's done. I turned in my report. Uh, We have heard, though, from some of Mueller's aides uh, that they expected uh, more of their findings to come out and that Bob Barr's four-page summary uh, kind of downplayed the importance of some of the things that they found that Trump had did wrong and made Trump look better than the, than the full report actually does, which we'll know when we see, if we see the full report. Um, Barr did say he tried to use some of Mueller's lang- language in putting together his summary so we'd get the flavor of it. I felt that I should state the bottom line conclusions, uh, and I tried to use uh, Special Counsel Mueller's own language in doing that. So the question is, when are we going to see it? What about it, Bill Barr? I, uh, within a week. Ah, within uh, a week. I will be in a position to release the port to the public. And he says he's going to color code it. Um, whatever, so... I guess if it's green, you're allowed to read it. If it's red, you're not allowed to. And if it's yellow, you have to have a certain security clearance to read it. Who knows? But uh, it's going to be heavily, we expect it to be heavily redacted. Uh, As Jerry Nadler says, that's the big question. Jerry Nadler, the uh, head of the uh, House uh, Judiciary Committee, of course. Do we receive a full copy of the Mueller report and the documentation underneath it? Do we receive most of it with a little redactions, or does, or do they completely um, um, expurgate it? Yeah, who knows? And I guess we'll know next week. And probably the battle will really start next week once yeah. he report releases as much as he wants to. Uh, he's not going to release at all. Um, then the, them, the Congress, rightfully so, I think, will go back and say, no, 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 we want the whole report, and we want all the backup documentation to it. That's our right as members of Congress to get that, and then we'll decide how much we can release to the public. If there's some sensitive parts of dealing with national security or with grand jury testimony where certain rights of privacy might prevail, we'll take care of that. But we, members of Congress, get the full report. Uh, they're going to be fighting over that for uh, quite a while. I do think the full report will eventually leak out. Um, yeah, you know, it was interesting. Somebody's yeah. going to give it to the New York Times or yeah. the Washington Post, and then we can we'll see that. And, and, and as we know, there are at least three publishers now who are primed to re- overnight practically print that full report and publish it in paperback and put it out for mass distribution. And it'll be a bestseller. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, I keep mentioning this because I think people have forgotten about it, you know, when the Star Report came out. And granted, there were maybe more <laughs> salacious details in there. The Star Report was X-rated. Yeah. It was, was published. Right. And they put it out very quickly. And, of right. course, this is before the days uh, that the Internet is what it is now. 
but so to read the whole thing, you really had to go buy the book. Yeah. The more interesting, well, equally interesting at any rate, all the attention has been on uh, Robert Mull, uh, Bill Barr's uh, comments about the release of the Mueller report. Uh, I thought it was equally interesting, his comments about the Affordable Care Act. As we know, we talked so much about this last week, that um, the Trump administration totally reversed itself. And now, as opposed to trying to keep some parts of the Affordable Care Act, particularly protection for people with pre-existing conditions, they now want to get rid of the whole thing, junk the whole thing. They've joined a lawsuit brought by several red states' attorney generals uh, to completely dismantle the Affordable Care Act. So Bill Barr was asked yesterday, so what do you think about that? Um, do you think this is a good idea? And all Barr would say was, that's not my job to to opine on whether it's a good idea or not. Well, what do you mean? He said, well, that's what the president wants, and so that's my job is to do what he wants, carrying out and joining this lawsuit. Even if he doesn't believe in it, he said he's going to go in and make the case to kill the entire Affordable Care Act, throwing millions of Americans off of health care, taking away from millions of Americans. He doesn't doesn't give a damn. He said that. He doesn't give a damn. It's just... He's been told that this is what the president wants, so he's going to go do it. You know, I, you know, God, what do these people think? <laughs> they just surrender. They, they, sur they sell their soul for what? Oh, this is one of the you know people. People assumed Barr was sort of one of these uh, <laughs> establishment DC figures who had a pretty decent head on his shoulders. wasn't necessarily a flamethrower. Uh, and, and yeah, he just will do whatever the president says. But you know, my my takeaway from the bar testimony yesterday, I think there were a lot of people who were gearing up for this to be some huge showdown. Uh, bar is a very unenthusiastic oh. character. I mean, oh. he's oh, yeah. just like a wet blanket. Yeah, and you and, look at him sitting there. Just yeah. Looks like, yeah, and, and he's. Not exciting, not interesting, not charismatic, didn't really give many answers. All of his answers no. were very short. Uh, so going to battle against this guy, I think you're right, it'll probably come after the redacted report comes out. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but who knows what's going to happen. Congresswoman Nita Lowy, on your point, Peter, I thought summed it up yesterday, that her impression, having taken the first good look at Bill Barr, here's who he is. It was very clear to me that the Attorney General is an appointee of President Trump. And when he shared with us that he showed the four-page letter to the administration, it was not clear to me that there were, weren't any revisions or changes. In other words, he's a political appointee, put there for one reason, put there to deep six the Mueller report, or at least as much of it uh, as he can. Also, interesting testimony on the on, on another committee with um, Chairwoman Maxine Waters of the House Banking Committee, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who, of course, was asked about Donald Trump and his tax returns um, because, ultimately, the IRS, of course, is part of the Treasury Department. Uh, and the key question by Mike Quigley of um, Illinois, Democrat of Illinois, was, Okay, so you are being asked by Congress, Chair of the Ways and Means Committee, Richard Neal, to release six years of the president's tax returns. That's The request is made to the IRS and through the IRS to the Secretary of Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, who makes a final decision. 
So have you talked to the White House about this? I mean, it basically fesses up and say, yeah. Has anybody in the administration communicated with anybody in your office about this decision? Our, our legal department has had conversations prior to mm. receiving the letter uh, with the White House general counsel. So this is all coordinated with the uh, Treasury Secretary. Uh, it reminds me of um, about a year ago, I think it was April 2018, at a White House briefing, Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, came out bragging about the new tax cuts and how it was going to, how many millions and millions of Americans, basically every American taxpayer was going to benefit from the tax cuts. Uh, and I asked the Secretary at the time, at that briefing, uh, wouldn't it be a nice, a good day today for the president to release his tax returns so that we could see how much the president benefited from the new tax cuts? <laughs> and Steve Mnuchin was not happy to get the question, uh, and he just said, uh, the president has made it clear his position about releasing his tax returns. Boom. Yeah, moved on. Um, so Maxine Waters asked him yesterday, well, if you do what the law requires, and if you uh, do release the tax returns as requested by Congress according to the IRS code and the law, are you afraid of getting fired? You're not afraid that you will be fired if, in fact, you release the returns. Well, I, I, I'm not afraid of being fired at all. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, by the way, you know, he and, he and Betsy DeVos and Rick Perry are the only two left, right? Well, Ben Carson got him over there, too. But, yeah. It's amazing that Mnuchin has, has <laughs> stayed in the job because he's a fairly visible character. He is. But I think he also does exactly what Trump wants, right? Like, he is... He's, he's the biggest suck-up in yeah. the administration. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, and that's totally. That's how you survive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, fig- yeah. he figured that out, right? Uh, one more hearing of interest yesterday. Um, so the House uh, Judiciary Committee, under uh, Chairman um, Jerry Nadler, after we saw the hate crime uh, in um, at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, right? It was yeah, in Pittsburgh, and the hate crime at the mosque in New Zealand and others. Jerry Nadler uh, thought that maybe we should take a look at this question, of a very frightening question, of white nationalism and the increasing number of hate crimes we've seen over the last couple of years. The way this this works is that the chairman can call that that hearing on that subject and the witnesses that the chair and the, in this case, the majority party, being the Democratic Party, want to hear from. And the minority can call whatever witnesses they want. The Republicans called on Candace Owens, who is, what would you say, provocateur at any rate, a cons- very conservative a columnist, well, a commentator. Yeah, and one of the things that she does and that she sort of rose to prominence is she worked with this uh, Turning Point USA, which is a group all about converting college students to hardcore conservatism right yeah slash white nationalism all of that stuff she's a young african-american woman uh she spouts lots of fascist talking points Uh, yeah she said for example um she has said for example that the southern strategy uh that started by richard nixon uh to um basically 
put Republican Party and carried on by Ronald Reagan and others, put the Republican Party on the side of white supremacists, uh, white nationalists in the South um, uh, in order to, and by the way, it worked politically to win the South uh, and can take it away from the, the Democratic control. Uh, she says it's a total myth. It never happened, which is interesting because back in 2005, the chair of the Republican Party, Kenneth Melman, gave a speech apologizing for the Southern strategy, saying it was a, um, a black cloud over the Republican Party that should never have happened. She says it was all a myth that never happened at all. Uh, she's also, she also got some notoriety recently because the perpetrator, uh, meaning the uh, mass murderer uh, in New Zealand, at the mosque in New Zealand, he said that she was the person that inspired him the most of all, Candace Owens. So, yes, great, perfect person for the Republicans to bring to testify, uh, meaning, saying basically yesterday, white nationalism, there's no problem. Uh, our good friend Ted Lou from Santa Monica, California, uh, use the opportunity to bring back uh, something else Candace Owens has said. In congressional hearings, the minority party gets to select its own witnesses. And of all the people that Republicans could have selected, they picked Candace Owens. I don't know Miss Owens. I'm not going to characterize her. I'm going to let her own words do the talking. So I'm going to play for you the first 30 seconds of a statement she made about Adolf Hitler. I agree. I, I actually don't have any problems at all with the word nationalism. I think that it gets, uh, the definition gets poisoned um, by elitists that actually want globalism. Globalism is what I, what I don't want. So when you think about whenever we say nationalism, the first thing people think about, in, at least in America, is Hitler. You know, he was a national socialist. But if Hitler just wanted to make Germany great and have things run well, okay, fine. The problem is, is that he wanted, he had dreams outside of Germany. He wanted to globalize. He wanted everybody to be German, everybody to be speaking. Yeah, so Hitler gets a bad rap. I mean, basically, is what she's saying. Yeah. You know, there, Hitler, there have been Hitler people... Hitler gets a bad rap. Make America German... Make, make Germany great again yeah. is all he wanted. There have been people who have lost their entire careers for saying exactly that. Absolutely. Hitler had a couple yeah. of good ideas. He just took them too far. Right. Or if he had just... Whatever he did, if he had just done it inside of Germany, that would have been fine. If he had not exported any of his bad ideas, then what's what's the problem, right? Absolutely shocking. She later backed down off that, tried to, right? But she said what she said, and good for Ted Lieu for, for playing it. Uh, but <laughs> left the Republicans with an egg on their face, if that's at all uh, possible. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, right. Uh uh, by the way, the shakeup at the uh, Department of Homeland Security um, continues. We know that Kirsten Nielsen is out. We know that the head of the Secret Service is out. A rumor there are others. Yesterday, the number two person at the Department of Homeland Security, her name is Claire Grady. She was the acting deputy secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, or Homeland Insecurity, as we called it yesterday. Um she uh, has also uh, been, well, Kirsten Nielsen yesterday on her next to last day in office announced that her deputy secretary was also resigning, meaning forced to resign. She had to do that because the person under the law, if the de secretary goes, the deputy secretary takes over. 
And so Donald Trump's the person Donald Trump wanted to move in as the new acting secretary. This guy, Kevin McAleenan. McAleenan, yeah, thank thank you. McAleenan, who is the commissioner for U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Donald Trump wanted him in there. He couldn't really come in under the legally while this deputy secretary was in place, if you follow it. They booted her yesterday, so now, I mean, it's it's it really continues to be this massive purge uh, at the Department of Homeland Security again, with uh, with with others expected uh, to follow. Uh, and some news on the college admissions front. Boy, it is getting worse and worse. This is a whole uh, scandal where uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, several parents, including some very well-known names like Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman. Uh, were nailed by the U.S. attorneys for um, cheating and paying people all kinds of money to get their kids into the college of their choice, of falsifying their sports records in high school, uh, getting other people to take their tests for them, um, and um, all, all kinds of all kinds of fraud there. It got that was bad enough. It got worse yesterday. Uh, when Laurie Laughlin and her husband were also charged with money laundering uh, because, allegedly, uh, they were um, claiming the money that they paid this guy, Rick Singer, as charitable contributions and writing them off their taxes. Um, So whoops, they could be spending a lot more time behind bars than originally thought. Uh, Felicity Huffman, who did enter a guilty plea day before yesterday, uh, prosecutors are asking because she's been cooperating that she spent serve only four months behind bars. Uh, the prosecutors are saying yesterday that the others, Felicity Hoffman and others, could face as much as two years in prison um, for yeah for, for all this financial fraud. I- I'm still kind of just... skeptical that anybody's going to do any serious jail time for this. Uh, just given you know the fact that these are rich white people, yeah. Uh, but they could very well make an example out of these parents. It looks like they're trying to. They're trying to. They're trying to. Yeah, man. Uh, and one other little bit of good news here uh, before we take a break. We've got a great lineup of guests today, by the way. Max Bergman joins us next from the Center for American Progress. He is our go-to guy on the Russian investigation. We haven't talked to him since the uh, four-page summary of the Mueller report came out. Uh, so we'll find out exactly what we did learn and what we didn't learn from that summary and uh, where we go next, what, when we might see it, what, um, how much of it we might see. Uh, Max Bergen, the man with all the answers on that. One other little uh, bit of good news I wanted to end on here before we take a break, and that is the Bank of America. While the United States Congress still can't decide whether or not they're going to raise the minimum wage from 725, where it's been stuck since the days of George W. Bush, um, Bernie Sanders and others, um, all the Democrats and some of the Republicans would like to raise it to $15, but they can't even get the votes for that. The Bank of America announced yesterday they're going to raise their minimum wage to $20, uh, starting in uh, gradually. In 2021, it will be up to $20 minimum wage. Good for them, not waiting for Congress to act, not waiting to have to be forced to do it. Uh, they certainly have the money. They certainly have the money, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know what? They're doing it, so yeah, good for them. Give them credit. All right, got a lot more to talk about. Again, 
quick break here, and then Max Bergman joins us from the Center for American Progress. What's the latest on the Russian investigation? Is it all over? Was there any collusion? All of that coming up on this Wednesday, April 10. Hang in there. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Make it a Wednesday, uh, April 10, 2019, and you got it. The Bill Press Show, live from Washington, D.C., coming to you live coast to coast, online, on the radio, and on television. Good to see you today. We're brought to you by the United Steelworkers and their international president, Leo Girard, the one and only Leo Girard, one of our great labor leaders in this country, uh, uh, heading the United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. And check out their website at usw.org. We salute them, thank them for the good work, their support of the program, and welcome to the table. Uh, from the Center for American Progress, Max Bergman, a senior fellow and covering all things national security related, particularly Mueller report related. Hi, Max. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you. Again, lots to catch up on here. Um, but before we s- jump into that, we've got a Look back for just the last half hour in the comments coming in from our viewers and listeners. Peter? Yes, indeed. We're on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Our buddy Romaine up in Chicago. Uh, I mentioned that Bill Barr was sort of a wet blanket at his uh, hearing yesterday. A big didn't, lump sitting didn't there. Didn't do much. Know, just, no. uh, Romaine says, Bill Barr may be a wet blanket and unassuming as he sits there, but he sure as hell is helping to douse the gasoline on the burning republic. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Also, Luna says, Welcome to Donald Trump's reputation destruction chamber, Mr. Barr. You may leave your soul at the door, or we will extract it for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Again, Bill Barr, uh, just one of the many people that uh, uh, Donald Trump has uh, ruined their reputation. Uh, And we talked yesterday about Eric Swalwell getting into the race. Uh, and we put up a poll. Will a candidate sta- will a candidate's stance on gun sense laws be a major consideration in determining your vote in 2020? Very simple question. Yes or no? 68% of you say yes. 32% of you say no. And he has said that is going to be his signature issue. His signature issue in the campaign. Right. Uh, so check us out on Twitter, at BP Show. We're taking your comments on any topic. At any time. Max, what did we learn from the Mueller report? Well, I don't think we've learned very much. Um, I think because we haven't, because seen, we haven't it. seen it. <laughs> right. You know, I yeah. think <laughs> I think Bill Barr did uh, a masterful PR uh, uh, effort for the president. Uh, you know, there was talk of Barr actually joining the president's legal team uh, over the past few years. And it turned out that he did. Uh, just as attorney general. And it clearly looks like the president has effectively one of his lawyers uh, acting as the interpreter for the Robert Mueller report. And I think the only thing that we actually, I think, learned from the bar summary of the Mueller report in that in this mm-hmm. letter, um, and it's something we knew, but I think it, that it's been sort of completely overlooked. And that is that Mueller found... Uh, and has proven that Russia interfered in the 2016 election, did so on behalf of Trump, and did so in in a way that was uh, incredibly, uh, it was a a massive uh, interference campaign and was impactful. And that 
in and of itself should be uh, a shocking reminder of what this is actually all about. What this is about was a foreign country intervened in our t- and attacked our democratic process. The one other tidbit that I think we actually learned from the bar summary is that the Trump campaign learned about that, knew about it, was offered multiple times by the Russians to say, hey, participate in this mm-hmm. interference campaign. According to Barr, they, they turned them down. At the least, they knew about it and then didn't contact the FBI, didn't contact uh, uh, law enforcement about this attack on our democracy. So I think that's about all we know. But on that point, yeah. before we get to obstruction, on that point, there were also multiple contacts. Right. Right. Between. Now, if you call that collusion or whatever, maybe it was not a criminal conspiracy to commit collusion, but it was collusion of some form. Yes. Right? No, I think there what, was collusion. All we yes. There, all we have learned is that uh, is that Mueller declined to make a charge that would have, I think, been basically unprecedented in history, which is that a campaign conspired with a, a foreign government and this isn't to sort of rob a bank where there's a specific sort of we're going to you know get the money and then divide the money and there's this sort of you can point to a clear sort of transaction or mm-hmm. agreement this is about influencing voters and so i think it was always much more abstract is coordinating over the timing of wikileaks or finding out ahead of times that russia is going to provide information to wikileaks that they're going to put into the campaign is that a conspiracy I mean, I think a, a layman's interpretation might be, uh, but it, at the very least, it's collusion. And one of the reasons why this term collusion was being used is because it wasn't a legal term. It just means right. secret cooperation or coordination for an illegal or deceitful purpose. And I think coor- you know, conspiring, coordinating, communicating with Russia in what they're in their illegal activity, I think fully counts as collusion. And there were so- more than 20 meetings that took place between... Trump campaign associates and the Kremlin during the campaign. Okay, so um, on that on the first charge on collusion, when Donald Trump says, "We've seen the report, there was no collusion," that's not true. That's not true. Okay. We all we know is that there was that Mueller declined to bring a conspiracy charge. Right. And Barr quoted the only thing he quoted was a fragment of a sentence. In the uh, from the Mueller report, that saying that he declined to bring a conspiracy charge, but what does the beginning part of that sentence say? What does the rest of it say? There's 400 pages, likely full it? of discussing the collusion, and we okay. know about a lot of the collusion, not just from you know us piecing things together, but from Mueller's indictments, from uh, legal proceedings that took place uh, through Mueller. All right, so now let's move forward. We get to obstruction. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, Mueller, or Mueller did find attempts to obstruct justice. He just didn't didn't reach a conclusion as to whether it was criminal or not. Again, I, I'm correct? not. Yeah, I'm. I'm not even sure if we can say he didn't reach a conclusion. That's what Barr sort of interpreted his report. But didn't to, he cite? I don't have it in front of me now. But didn't he cite one phrase from? From, so, so he did. Mueller? So he only quoted cited him. He only quoted Mueller related to the conspiracy charge. He oh, all okay. he did was uh, when it came to obstruction, is Barr characterized said that Mueller didn't reach a traditional prosecutorial decision. Mm. Now but what he Barr did, but he Barr then decided to intervene and make a prosecutorial decision. Now right. what do I think? 
What do I think happened here? Well, we went back and we looked out the, the, during Watergate, the special counsel, uh, Leon Jaworski, produced what was then at the time called an impeachment referral. This was the, the roadmap. This was the special counsel's uh, report that was then provided to the impeachment inquiry in the House Judiciary Committee. Now, if you read that, you don't find a sentence where Jaworski is like, oh, here's the obstruction of justice and Nixon committed a crime. Because according to the DOJ regulations, the, they can't charge the president with a crime. Yeah. So if you can't charge the president with a crime, I don't think a prosecutor can then go and say, hey, I've made this conclusion that the president committed this crime because then you, you know, you're supposed to indict them. Uh, so I think what happened is Mueller just laid out the facts of the obstruction, which I think anyone who re- you know, reading those facts <laughs> would say that that's eminently clear that that's obstruction of justice. So I think what Mueller pro- may have done, and this is my speculation, that may have actually provided essentially the same thing that Jaworski did, a, a, a de facto impeachment referral related to obstruction. Barr then comes in and intercedes and says, well, see, Mueller didn't actually say mm-hmm. that the president committed obstruction of justice. Ergo, I'm just going to make the determination that he didn't because Barr has this legal view that the president can't commit obstruction of justice. So where we, what we have here is Barr, in fact, while Mueller was supposed to be the referee, he was supposed to be the guy that was going to oversee and, and, you know, the independent uh, prosecutor there was going to make a determination. Barr has come in and said, no, no, no. I'm the referee. I'm the person that's going to make the decisions. I'm going to decide what Congress can and cannot see. Why, why and he's not independent at all. No. Why didn't Mueller do his job, finish his job? Because, because I guess what you just told us is because he knows that they could not indict the president, and so he just wanted to leave it hanging. That, that's my assumption. Because when you talk to people, you know, experienced lawyers and who know Robert Mueller, says, He's not one to shirk a call. And so if he's not one to shirk a call, then maybe it's because he was instructed so they couldn't make a call. So then it's up to Congress to, to make that call? Exactly. And this is where, it, this is ultimately a, a, something that should be up to Congress. What we have here is the question of whether the executive branch can investigate itself. That happened during Watergate, but then what we had was Nixon then fired the special prosecutor and had this Saturday Night Massacre. But we had an attorney general that then stood up to Nixon and uh, the processes sort of played out. But Congress played a really important role during Watergate in sort of driving the oversight. And so I think what we have now in for the last two years, Congress and, and you know, everyone has deferred to Robert Mueller. Now, Robert Mueller has done his job. Now, there's questions about whether guardrails were put up around his investigation, whether he was able to look at the money. Why didn't he interview Donald Trump Jr. or Donald Trump? Donald Trump. Um, so, so there's questions about the scope of his investigation, but he's now apparently finished his work. The question then is, what is you know Congress now needs to take the baton, and what and Barr is trying to prevent them from taking the baton. He's trying to sort of you know hold it out away from away from them, and so I think we're now going to have a really messy legal process to determine uh, to to determine whether Congress can actually see the information. Right. Uh, so Barr yesterday, as we know, at the hearing said uh, within a week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, w- w- what do your sources tell you? Is it are we going to see it within a week? Is this going to be delayed again? I I think we will. Is and it I, next week the Easter break? Yeah, next week is uh, Easter break. Congress is about to go on recess at the end of this week. So you know, it's 
I, I I wouldn't be surprised if we get this sort of the the Friday you know Friday or Thursday as as members of Congress are starting to get on planes right. and leave town, uh, basically to make it a, the timing as terrible as possible for Congress, and that that I think is indicative of what Barr is trying to do. And he's not going to release the full report. No, he it's going to be redacted. So yesterday, you know, I, I have to commend him on his on his PR approach to a congressional hearing, which is just. To, come across as boring uh, and as low energy as possible. Uh, and, you know, I think what what he's trying to do is put, he's created four categories of information that he says he's going to have to redact. You know, one is grand jury information. And we know Congress has, there's precedent for Congress getting grand jury information. The precedent is that Watergate report, the Jaworski mm -hmm. Uh, impeachment referral that I mentioned, which included grand jury information. The second is classified information. Now, Congress has a right to classified information. And as someone who f used to work in the State Department was the re recipient of classified information, you know, cl classified information is an art, not a science. That The State Department would constantly fight with the intelligence community over declassifying information. So if we wanted to give something to an ally or say, hey, you know, the, hey, country, you need to seize this ship because there's chemical weapons on board. And the country would say, well, show us the intel. And then we would have this. Uh, so yeah. we declassify stuff all the time. And so there's going to be a fight over that. Then there's going to be a fight over personal information or embarrassing information that suddenly now, you know, after the Star Report, or after the email investigation, suddenly Republicans say, well, maybe we shouldn't disclose information uh -huh. about yeah. people that are targets. So there's going to be a, uh, 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 this fight over what Barr is redacting and why. But also, um, Barr could release the full report to Congress and then up to Congress to decide yeah. what becomes public. Yeah, right? so, so this, this is not about what gets printed in the New York Times. This is about yeah. what Congress has the right to see. Right. So, yeah. yes, should there be you know, the intelligence community looking through this report and if there is a source or method uh, that, that could be burned or lost... Yes, then then potentially that that should be redacted. I think we're really overdoing it and thinking that there's gonna be a lot of stuff that should be redacted given we've been talking about this for two and a half years. The Russian ambassador knew his cell phone was being hacked. It, it was reported in the in the Washington Post. There's no that's not a burning a source of meth, but sources or, or method, but that would still be classified. So I think but this is about Congress getting it. Now the Jaworski report never leaked. I think it's incumbent upon this information be provided to Congress for them to make a determination then about what to do with that information. Um, and and so Barr's unwillingness to even provide it to Congress, I think, is the problem. Mm -hmm. Because you can't really have real oversight of this process if you're redacting and withholding information from a co-equal branch of government that has a right to see it. But is the reality that um, maybe, maybe, uh, the critics of Trump, if you will, or Democrats in general, put too much faith in Robert Mueller and too much faith in the Robert report as if this is going to be the, like the deus ex machina that came down and got rid of Donald Trump even before uh, 2020. And and that uh, the reality is that, that all that, those high expectations, you know, were dashed, not met, are never going to be met, and... The only way forward is through these uh, committee hearings um, by the various House committees. Yeah, I, I, to look into some of those same issues. So I, I, I definitely carry them out. I definitely think that it's a bit like a batter who 
you know, keeps waiting for his pitch and instead of swinging the bat when the, there's, you know, that meaty fastball over the plate, decides I'll wait for the next one and then they strike out. And, and I think the problem here was um, Democrats put all their sort of eggs in the in protecting the investigation in Mueller, not in, but when damaging information came out, when we, you know, that, that there was this constant deference, well, we'll just wait for the Mueller report to come well, of out. Of course, they didn't have control of Congress. Didn't have either, control so they, completely. Yeah. Um, so I do think that the, the hope on the Democratic side was Robert Mueller would just solve this for them. Right. Right. I do think that what he likely has done is provided a report that if they get the full report would be somewhat shocking to the country, or at least if we had seen it, you know, if it, this report had come out two years ago, it would have been absolutely shocking to the country um, and provides a roadmap for how Democrats should then address this issue. Uh, but I think what's critical is that this is ultimately about an attack on the country. This isn't simply about some, you know, uh, uh, a sex scandal or a land deal in the, the st with Ken Starr mm -hmm. or an email server. This is about uh, the Russian attack on the country and whether anyone from any American aided or abetted that attack. And so I think getting to the bottom of that, getting that report, holding public hearings is going to be absolutely critical. And, you know, it wasn't up to Robert Mueller to solve this for the country. It was up to Robert Mueller to do a fact-finding mission. And now it's going to be up to Democrats to determine what they're, you know, you know how much they're going to fight to get this report. And then when they get it, what they're going to do uh, with that information. And what happens to the other thing I thought that where Mueller sort of prematurely gave up. I mean, you mentioned without ever interviewing the principal person here, the, the president himself willing to move on to, yeah. to wrap things up without having that meeting didn't seem to push that hard for it but there are other pieces that are floating out there right michael flynn hasn't been sentenced yet roger stone they haven't even brought him to trial yet i mean what about what happens to all those pieces i can think of stone and and manafort still and rick gates yeah. i mean all unresolved yeah there, there are so many unresolved questions here and i think questions not just about you know what happened with with you know with this witness or with this uh, you know person that has been indicted, but also about w the scope of the investigation. Was there any? Did Barr come in and essentially say pencils down that you had to just you know you're you're done. We're not doing any additional indictments. We're not. Was that was there actually external pressure from the de or Department of Justice on the Mueller investigation or constraints put on on Mueller? For instance, did the president threaten to fire Mueller if he looked at his finances, and therefore Mueller uh, didn't go into that? I, I, I think there's, I think there's a, a, a tremendous role for Congress to have oversight and not have Barr be the interlocutor here, but be, but have Robert Mueller, the guy who was conducting the investigation, have to answer, just question to, to explain the investigation. Um, and so I think it's about getting his report and then having him testify. The idea that he wouldn't testify to me is ludicrous. But you mentioned Mike Flynn, and I think this is another thing that Barr never mentioned. This is one of the largest counterintelligence investigations that I think, you know, in, in, in kind of the modern era. Uh, what did Mike Flynn spend a week and a half cooperating with Robert Mueller about, I think is a, a, one of the major mm -hmm. questions. They weren't just telling war stories. And what Flynn was likely cooperating about was stuff not having to do with the campaign, was about the transition, was the 
aftermath where Flynn was talking to the Russian ambassador and got the Russians not to, uh, to not to retaliate with sanctions. How did he do that? What did he sort of promise? What, what, why did he lie about that conversation is a major mystery. There's also other people that were cooperating with the Mueller investigation. This UAE lobbyist, George Nader, that was then connected to an RNC finance chair. What, 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 did, what, what happened with that information? And I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. Why did he not interview Donald Trump Jr., uh, uh, supposedly? Why did he not then interview Donald Trump himself? Um, and I think those are the questions that, you know, you have a, a, a special prosecutor. There needs to be some accountability for that special prosecutor as well uh, about the decisions that they've made. After the hearing yesterday, uh, Congresswoman Nita Lowy uh, talked to reporters uh, outside the hearing room, uh, giving her uh, walk away, take away impression, if you will, of the uh, attorney general. It was very clear to me that the attorney general is an appointee of President Trump. And when he shared with us that he showed the four-page letter to the administration, it was not clear to me that there were, weren't any revisions or changes. So um, her point is, and I think we have to accept that, Bill Barr is a, was put there for a reason. Yes. Wasn't he? Yes. Yep. And, and I, mean, we, I think there's a few things we have to remember about him. I mean, the first is what did Trump you know, why was Trump railing on Jeff Sessions for more than a year and a half? It wasn't because Jeff Sessions, you know, humanitarian approach to immigration policy. It was because Jeff Sessions recused himself. And Trump, you know, has known to say he wanted his, quote, Roy Cohn, his, his uh, this lawyer attack dog that's going to defend him. Yep. Uh, so, so we know the motivation of the president trying to find an attorney general. And then we have Barr. For him, an attorney general is not head of the independent justice department it's his guy yeah it's right? his lawyer to his lawyer to protect right, him to and protect then him. then we have Barr auditioning essentially to be attorney general writing a 19 page letter to doj saying the Mueller investigation is a farce and there's no obstruction of justice here but then Which we he did a year ago uh, he did a year ago uh, and then you know i think there's two other examples the the other one is iran contra and Barr has, there's precedence for Barr acting as the cover-up cover up agent. After Iran-Contra, Barr was George uh, Bush Sr.'s attorney general. One of the things that Barr did is he issued pardons, and he effectively made Iran-Contra go away. Because Iran-Contra was also very uncomfortable for George Bush Sr. So Barr sort of has, you know, there's precedent for him playing this role. And the last thing is that Barr has also demonstrated himself to be a loyal Trump uh, cabinet official, that in the national emergency uh, declaration, Barr went to the White House, was there with the president, this sort of photo op with other mm, cabinet right. heads, yeah. and gave this sort of you know sycophantious uh, uh, remarks and speech praising the decision about how we have this crisis on the border. So he's also demonstrated willingness to play ball in front of the cameras as a political operative. And so I think all four of those things, Trump's you know intentions the DOJ letter, Iran-Contra, and then Barr's own actions all demonstrate that there's actually no reason to, why anyone should trust him as an independent interlocutor. I think people gave him a degree of trust because they felt, well, he's sort of part of the establishment. He kind of looks older. He doesn't look like a Trumpian figure. But I think there's now, especially after this, this, this you know, mm -hmm. a farcical summary letter, there's absolutely no reason why he should have 
any benefit of the doubt, anyone should give him, uh, Democrats should trust him at all to oversee this process. I, I would add one other item to your list, which is what he said yesterday about the Affordable Care Act. He said, you know, my job isn't to to, to, to see whether this is going to throw 20 million people yeah. off of health care or nothing like that. If the president says this is our position, then I'll go into court and defend that position. Yeah, and 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 I think that, that is what, that's what we're seeing with him, yeah. you know, right. trying to say, Oh well, Democrats didn't want information to come out about uh, about co- the, the Hillary Clinton's yeah. emails or the Star Report, and this is about an attack on our country. It's important this information come out. It's it's good that you get back to that. By the way, so now with the uh, big Passover Easter recess coming, you're going to have a lot of reading to do when whatever the Mueller report <laughs> leaks. Thanks for coming in, Max. Thank you. All right, Center for American Progress This is the Bill Press Show. Son, we got to talk about drinking. I know. I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's not a big deal. Don't yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I, I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. The report. Bill Barr says yesterday it'll be out within a week. <laughs> Do you believe it? And how much of it will we see? Hello, everybody. What do you say? It's a Wednesday, April 10. Uh, this is it. The Bill Press Show. Good to see you. We are coming to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., just down the street from the United States Capitol Building, bringing you the news of the day and joining you wherever you are in this great land of ours and around the globe. We're there with you online, on the radio, and on television, uh, coast to coast on Free Speech TV, on the radio out in um, Chicago on WCPT, and online, of course, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. With uh, the news of the day, we'll tell you what's going on here in Washington, around the country, and around the globe. You tell us what it all means to you. Uh, and do so by sending us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Big stories of the day. 
Attorney General Bill Barr yesterday promising Congress uh, that the report, he will be finished with his redaction, and he'll give us uh, as much of the report as uh, he <clears throat> wants to. Uh, he said within a week, Steve Mnuchin admitting to Congress yesterday that he has been talking to the White House about whether or not he should uh, con uh, uh, go along with the law, comply with the law, and with the request of Congress to release his tax returns. Uh, and a big hearing on white nationalism yesterday that blew up in the Republicans' face. All of that coming up. We want to hear from you, your comments on the news of the day at B on Twitter, at BP Show. We'll jump right into it, but first... This Peter is the Headline Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, this is very troubling. In New York uh -oh. City, they have... A measles outbreak. Yesterday, Mayor Bill de Blasio actually addressed this. We have a situation now where children are in danger. Uh, 285 cases have been confirmed since October, just to put yeah. that into perspective. By the way, in four precincts in Brooklyn. Yeah, and specific. So they, they point out that the, the, the outbreak is, is the ground zero, if you will, for this, is mm -hmm. the Orthodox Jewish community in Williamsburg. Uh, and that it is spreading from there. Uh, now, I mentioned there are 285 cases that have been confirmed since October. Just to put that into perspective, in all of 2017, there were two cases reported. Mm. Yeah. So this is a major, major problem and a serious epidemic. Uh, there have been no deaths yet. Uh, 21 people have been hospitalized. Five have been into, into intensive care. Uh, and New York City is taking it very, very seriously. In fact, they're now talking about fining people who do not get vaccinated. Yeah, you know, this is a real... I, I have no patience at all with these parents who do not vaccinate their kids. Yeah. You know, they're not only endangering their own children, but other children in the community. Yeah. Uh, so get with it. It's baseball season. No kidding. As you know. <laughs> well, the Nats won last night. I'm sure Carol is happy. The very first thing when I saw her this morning that she said to me was not, good morning, how's your day? <laughs> you have a good day or anything. She said, you know, when you went to bed, the Nats were behind 6-1. to one. They won 10-6. They came back. They came back and won. <laughs> they the came back and won. I don't remember about this morning. Yeah. Well, the defending World Series <laughs> champions, Boston Red Sox, are not having a great season. Uh, one of the reasons might be it's because early. it is early. It is early. Yeah, give me that credit. Uh, one of the reasons that they might not be doing so great is they, they are playing without Brock Holt, one of their players, Brock Holt. Uh, he is on the disabled list because he suffered an injury. He suffered an injury because he got a scratched cornea playing with his young child. Oh. His kid had the fingernails. Yeah. They were playing, jumping up and down on the bed in a hotel room, and his kid reached up, oh. scratched his cornea. The guy can't see very well, oh. so he is still recovering from that. He's expected to be back very soon. I'm telling you, man. I don't know. Does insurance cover that? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> This is the Bill Press Show. And happy Wednesday from the Bill Press Show. That's us. We're coming to you live, joining you coast to coast from our studio in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. on this Wednesday, April 10. Thanks so much for being with us as we join you 
on YouTube, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Out in Chicago on the great WCPT, we're there with you on the radio in the great city of Chicago and all the surrounding communities there, and nationwide on television on Free Speech TV. Great to see you today. Lots going on, lots to talk about on the border crisis. Donald Trump uh, yesterday um, defending the policy of family separation, but insisting he's not going to go back there again and blaming it all on Barack Obama. And meanwhile, we're learning uh, that ICE uh, has uh, had made some kind of a deal with Motel 6, where Motel 6 was providing information on uh, people who were uh, getting lodging for the night and turning those names and that information over to ICE. Um, Hassan Zafari is a consumer rights attorney who is involved in that case, representing those people who are suing Motel 6 and joins us in studio. Hassan, welcome. It's nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. Great, great to see you, Bill. Tell us about this case. How did it all get started? And where are these Motel 6 in, like in border country, Arizona, you know, Nevada, and not Nevada, but California, Texas? Uh, well, let me just clarify that I'm, yeah. I'm not personally involved in the case, oh, okay. but I do have some right. knowledge about the case, and, and I'm I, pleased to talk sorry, to you so about I, it, but that's okay. Yeah. I just don't want to claim credit for what I think is fantastic <laughs> work by the lawyers who've, who've done a fantastic job here. So there, it appears there was a corporate policy within Motel 6 where the employees were directed to share information with with ICE, and the basis for that was just foreign-sounding names, uh, Latin-sounding names. And so what they were doing was actually providing lists of names to people, and ICE was knocking on people's doors at 6 in the morning, uh, demanding to see papers, asking for their um, passports, detaining people, and actually processing them for deportation. So this... <laughs> This was um, profiling at its worst, right? It, it, it's it's profiling at its worst, and I think there's another element to it that it's not just government profiling, but that it's corporate profiling, and I think that's something that should be very frightening to all of us. Do you know whether uh, Motel 6, uh, I guess ICE must have um, approached them and said, hey, we have a suspicion that some people are who come across the border are stopping at the Motel 6. It's, I find it strange that what we know about people coming across the border, they'd have enough money to stay even at a Motel 6, right? Well, and it, yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily – I mean, the Arizona piece is probably people crossing at the border. But keep in mind, this was also happening in Washington state. Oh, So it's oh, not – and that's it. where the attorney oh, general it. settlement was. So it's not just border crossing areas. It's just yeah. people huh. – you know, I think it's an inexpensive place for people to say, stay, people who are, uh, you know, day laborers and so on. But my suspicion is that ICE would have approached them and said, we have reason to believe, I, I, and so we need your cooperation. And the company said, sure. I think that's likely. Now, it's interesting that both of these cases, there was a case brought in Washington by the state attorney general. There was a case brought in Arizona by a nonprofit a class action group. And both of those cases settled pretty early before discovery was taken and before those sorts of facts came out. So we don't really know. Right. Uh, and uh, there are, I mean, basic we laugh about the no tell motel right but there are still some basic right of privacy rules r relating i don't know i'm not an attorney but hotels and motels aren't there absolutely and that was part of the lawsuit in washington state by the attorney general washington has a constitutional right of privacy now 
technically there's there's not a right of privacy in our U.S. Constitution. It's been implied in in, in Roe versus Wade and other cases. But uh, certain states, including Washington and California, have an explicit constitutional right of privacy. So that was one basis for the lawsuit. And the other basis was just its profiling, its racial and, and discrimination and discrimination based on national origin. I, I would imagine also that if Motel 6 had agreed to this, so Motel 6, by, by the way, in these settlements, Motel 6 has basically admitted that they were, not, were doing wrong. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But I, so I started to say, I would ex- expect that if Motel 6 were playing this game with, the, with ICE, they're not alone. I think that's probably right. And I think that it's important to start looking at other organizations and entities in the hospitality industry or elsewhere that are cooperating with ICE. I mean, we hear lots of stories about people being uh, suspiciously uh, contacted in, in lots of different settings. And I think it's important important work that the state's attorneys general are doing and also that these nonprofit organizations are doing to try and figure out where an inappropriate uh, revelation of private information is being given that's resulting in detentions. Right. Um, you, now, I want to be sure I get this right. Do you also, one client that you do represent is a woman who recently brought charges against the president for sexual assault? That's right. That's Alva Johnson. Alva Johnson. Yeah. Uh, That case was not that long ago. That's right. We filed uh, a few weeks ago in uh, in central Florida against Donald Trump for battery for when he uh, kissed her against uh, it was what we describe as a forcible kissing. And then also we Where sued, did this allegedly take place? It took place at a rally in Tampa during the campaign. She was part of his campaign staff, and it happened in an RV in front of a bunch right. of other people. No, I remember that case when I was filed. Yeah. So before he was um, elected, as maybe a light <laughs> use of the word, um, but before <laughs> he <laughs> ended up president of the United States, thanks to the Electoral College, there were some 19 or 20 women who had charged him with sexual assault. Yeah, I think there was an avalanche of people. Right. She's not one of them. No, she is not. I just want to be clear. So this is in addition to to that group. Absolutely. What happened to her was she, her assault occurred in late 2016. uh, And after the Access Hollywood tape came out, and it put After it all the in the Access Hollywood. Well, it happened shortly before, about a yeah. month and a half before. Then the Access Hollywood tape came out, and she heard him describe his modus operandi, and it was exactly what had happened to her. So after that, she immediately left the campaign. She contacted a lawyer. She never returned to the campaign. Ultimately, that lawyer w- was not able to pursue the litigation. She tried to sort of get back into her normal life. But I think after... And she was a Trump supporter. I mean, she was a she was campaign staff, staffer. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. In Relatively Florida. high up on the staff. Yeah. And so a- after sort of a period of time of seeing what was happening in this presidency, and I think, you know, what happened in Charlottesville was really important to her. She's an African-American woman. What uh, was happening at the border with, you know, uh, putting small babies in cages. I mean, these sorts of things had a cumulative effect on her, and she decided to come forward at that point. What kind of... Um resistance you get from Trump's attorneys on a case like this? Well, we don't know yet. So the attorney that we're going to be facing is Charles Harder. I don't know if you if, if that name rings a bell or not, but he's the, the lawyer that brought down Gawker in the Hulk Hogan mm. case. Oh, right. 
Right. So, right. So he's made an appearance there. He's also, I think, he's working for the president. He is Donald Trump's personal lawyer, and he's also representing the campaign in that case. So we expect it to be bare knuckles. Uh, is there any? Well, I guess the question is, wasn't isn't there a question about whether or not you can even sue the president of the United States? That that was an open question until uh, until the, the the sort of cabal of conspirators brought the case against Bill Clinton on behalf of Paula Jones, and the Supreme Court ruled, uh, I believe it was unanimously, that you can sue a sitting president. And that has been tested in the Summers-Ervos case, and mm-hmm. has, and that case has been allowed to proceed. And the Summers-Ervos case is proceeding it is, in the New absolutely. York Superior Court, I believe. Absolutely. Yeah, right. that, that's a bit of an interesting case because even though she does allege sexual assault and sexual harassment, She's not able to sue on that because statute of limitations passed. So her case is based on defamation because he called her a liar when she came forward with that. Mm-hmm. So Alva's case is unique. There are so many accusers, but unfortunately, because of statutes of limitation, she's really the only one who's in a position to bring forward an allegation in court that she was a victim of sexual assault and where that is the set, the central claim. Because it happened so recently. So That's re- right. So so recently, right. Uh, has the president commented on Alva Johnson? No, not yet. We've gotten a uh, comment from Sarah Sanders and some of the other folks around him, but he has not yet commented. I'm sure Sarah Sanders says, right. She's... She said there's no truth to it, and we can under- understand and appreciate that she, she know? knows what truth is, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I go to the White House briefings. I, yeah, I don't look to Sarah Huckabee <laughs> Sanders to tell me what's true or what's not true. I don't, I don't believe a word she says, uh, nor do I don't believe a word that Donald Trump says, but but how how would she know she wasn't there right i mean she's just she she was not there now it's interesting there were there were, were there a couple other, of people who yeah. were there who have uh made statements um w- one of whom may, uh name may ring a bell is pam bondi the former attorney general of florida yes, yes. she was there um and uh she uh she claims that it, nothing of the sort happened and if anything had happened that she would have intervened um and um w- we have a lot of reason to to question her credibility. Remember, she accepted a donation of $25,000 and shortly afterwards declined to prosecute Trump for the Trump University uh, mm. f- fraud. So she's a Trump partisan. She's always been part of the, uh, the, the the Trump train. There was another witness who claimed that Alva was not even in the RV at the time. And we have photographs and video placing her right there in the RV. So we know that's not true. And then there's Stephanie Milligan, who is, I believe, the chief of staff for Melania Trump, who claims she that it, that it didn't happen. But Ms. Milligan wasn't even there in the RV. What kind of relief does Alva seek? So it's interesting. There's There's two aspects of the case. There's the first piece, which is the assault piece, which which she seeks uh, damages and injunction, uh, barring Trump from uh, assaulting any other women. Obviously, that's going to be a, a, a tough sell, but something <laughs> that we think it's important to, to try and seek. Um, and then there's another piece, which is a uh, race and gender discrimination case, which she's bringing on behalf of all the women and minority members of the Trump campaign based on the unequal pay that they received during the campaign. And again, she alleges that he did what? She alleges that as he, he, they're all in the RV together, and she is there as a member of the campaign staff. And as he, he spends maybe five minutes in the campaign with volunteers, shaking hands, taking pictures with people, and as he's leaving, uh, they exchange pleasantries, said a few words, and he leaned in and kissed her on the mouth. 
Uh, tongue in mouth? No tongue, but certainly a very intimate kiss and something that she felt was inappropriate and uh, found disturbing at the time. And uh, it, But again, I think it wasn't until she heard him describe his whole right. this is what he does he you know mm-hmm. he kisses Access he doesn't Hollywood, yeah right. and that's when it things really clicked in and she realized you know that this was something that it there was a reason why it felt creepy and disgusting yeah i her. mean okay. fr- from a from a court case right from a trial standpoint you know you have him on tape saying this is what he does so uh, worse than that that's right. Oh yeah, you no, know, uh, yeah, I mean he goes farther than that, but specifically, you know, yeah. I, if I see a woman and I want to kiss him, I just kiss him. Right. Because when you're famous, yep. you can do anything you want. Uh and then he went on obviously to say much worse things. Um but like how does that play into any kind of I mean, we we talked about the statute of limitations, the trials and all this stuff, but how does that play into a court case with him actually saying this is something that he does? Well, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's incredibly important. I, I, what I assume is going to happen is he's going to deny that it happened, and we'll. You've got all that, and we've got all got that evidence, take. and and hopefully, what our hope is is to, to give these other victims an opportunity to talk, because among the damages that we're seeking are punitive damages, and we're claiming battery, which is an intentional tort, and in order to show his state of mind, his intent. We want to bring forward all those other victims and have them testify about what happened to them and give them an opportunity to tell the jury what happened to them. And you're in court in Florida? Is that right? That's right, in federal court. Okay. Now now that you've described what he did, um, how is that different from what Joe Biden did? I I think it's a lot different from what Joe Biden did. Joe Biden appears to be... uh, like a lot of my Italian and Iranian relatives, just just very affectionate and touchy feely in a way that sometimes is uncomfortable for people. Handsiness, I notice they're calling it now. Yeah, and he does it. It looks yeah. like he does it to his his male friends. He does it even to family members. He does it to strangers. Uh, but he, it, it doesn't appear to be some sort of sexual uh, contact, which is exactly what the president said is what he's doing. Right. Oh yeah. No. Um, I think the big difference, just because some people are going to say, well, see, you know, he's just he's just affectionate like Joe Biden. No, Donald Trump, in his own words, has said he has a lot more in mind, you know, when he attacks these women, basically. Yeah, I mean, he's basically described it as a as a, a sexual assault. And there's a there's another uh, admission where he is on um, the Howard Stern show talking about all of his oh. exploits. And Howard Stern says, well. You're what you're saying here is you're and, and Robin Quivers jumps in and says you're a sexual predator. You know, I mean, just based on his own description of what he says. And he said, yes, I guess I am. So, I mean, he's admitted that. I mean, this is a far cry from what we're dealing with with uh, Joe Biden. And I think it's actually very interesting to see, you know, our story came out. It was a credible allegation of a real sexual assault by the sitting president of the United States. And it was in the news for a couple of days. I mean, we have an actual lawsuit. I mean, this is this is real stuff. The stuff with Joe Biden was somebody saying it wasn't a sexual assault. She felt uncomfortable. She felt it was inappropriate. Never felt like it was sort of a, a, any anything sexual. This thing has has sort of developed this life of its own that's sort of gone well and far and beyond anything that we've seen, you know, with respect to this actual sitting uh, president and this lawsuit that no, is that, consistent with a straight thread. That no, it's a very good point. I mean, the Joe Biden story. Uh, in a sense, is still around, but certainly for five or six days, that's all we heard about, right? That's and absolutely the right. Johnson case, I had to remind myself when I knew you were coming in what that was about, and it wasn't that long ago. It was a lot more serious. 
I want to ask you about uh, Alva Johnson and how the president sort of operates with these women, because there is sort of a pattern, clearly. Uh, But what is the deal with her NDA, uh, the non-disclosure agreement? Because Donald Trump has used this a couple of different Mm. times with Mm -hmm. a couple of different women. Yeah, the the NDA is incredibly uh, broad and vague. Non-disclosure agreement. I'm sorry, yes, non-disclosure agreement. That's right. right. I'm not an attorney, but I did sleep at a Holiday Inn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so he forces everybody in his his, uh, orbit to sign this thing. And it is the first time I read it, even my during jaw the campaign, dropped, especially during the campaign, even before he was running for president, just people who worked for him in business. And it actually bars the person from saying anything about a, a family uh, member explicitly calling out like his grandchildren. You can't say anything about his grandchildren. You can't say anything about a Trump branded product that might be construed as negative. And the interesting thing is, is that he gets to decide exclusively gets to decide what is confidential, what is derogatory, what sorts of things are not to be said. And and they have sued people under this NDA. Um, and I believe there's litigation going on with Omarosa that I uh, that mm-hmm. Charles Harder is also involved in relating to the NDA. There are a lot of questions about whether an NDA can actually be enforced. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And we've got uh, one of the greatest uh, experts on this. His name is Paul Bland from Public Justice. He's our our co-counsel on this case who's going to help us. Uh, and, and we think we've got a very strong fight, uh, a, a strong argument that we can knock down this NDA. So she did sign an NDA, right? She did sign. And now, interestingly, this is sort of but, reminiscent of the, um, the Stephanie Clifford case. Nobody on the campaign actually signed it. So just she signed it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's stunning. But uh, but I'm thinking also, like, look, you've got um, Cliff Sims, who came out with his book, Team of Vipers, right? There's a lot of stuff in there I'm sure Donald Trump was not happy for. Uh, he must have signed an NDA. He was working in the White he House. He did. I believe he's been sued for that as well. And, and the, the interesting thing there with the NDA in the Cliff Sims case is he was a government employee. He, yes. So Trump doesn't own that information, right, privately. Inf- well, that's, 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 that's sort of Cliff Sims' response, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's an important response, but I think the same can be said for the campaign. I mean, this is these are matters of public interest, and I don't think Trump gets to control th- this this information. One of the things that we've seen in in cases like this is that one woman comes forward and then others do. Now, we did have all that group of women, as I mentioned, before um, Donald Trump even became a candidate. Uh, since Alva came forward a month or six weeks ago, whenever it was, have any others who were in the campaign talked about similar experiences? No, not to my knowledge. And and it wouldn't surprise me if to the extent that they had it. You know, we know what happens in a lot of these cases. There are agreements where people have, uh, you mm-hmm. know, been paid money to, to not talk. So we don't know the extent to which that's happened. Right. Um, what is the timetable for for moving forward with this? So we expect to hear back from uh, Donald Trump and his campaign through Charles Harder on May 11th. That's when they're due to respond to our complaint. May 11th. That's right. Yeah, that's coming up soon. It's coming up soon, yes. We'll, see, we'll see if the media buries that again. Right? We'll see. That's right. Yeah. Um, I know you did not represent them, but uh, are the cases of um, Karen McDougal and, and um, Stormy Daniels just kind of gone away? Yeah, I think basically what, <laughs> what, the, what the government did or what Trump did was just, uh, just fold with respect to both cases and say, well, with respect to Stormy Daniels' case, saying, okay, we're not going to enforce the NDA and we're not going to enforce it with, uh, with respect to Karen McDougal. And so 
you know, at that point, there's the judge declared the case in California, the Stormy Daniels case, to be moot. That there's there's no, and Avenatti, I think, tried to continue to fight it and continue to push it forward, but the judge said, no, there's nothing. You know, they basically surrendered. There's nothing else here. So uh, they got their money. They keep their money, and they get to keep the money, and they get to say what they want. They'll say what they want, and Donald Trump just basically move on. That's right. right. That's right. Right. Um, have <laughs> it, it? It just astounds me. The United States is the center of all of these lawsuits, and people seem to sort of certainly the Republican Party accept that as the new normal. It's pretty stunning, isn't it? It, it is stunning, and it's it's part of the reason why Alva wanted to come forward is because she felt like this was being normalized, and that you know it it was a it it was a shock before the election. We thought it was going to be the end of his campaign, and yet still he managed to uh, become the president of the United States. And it's almost as though, in most people's minds, it's baked in. I mean, we have this massive support from the evangelical community for this man who admitted to sexually assaulting women who's on the record, and there's so many women have come forward. And I think it's appalling to most uh, most people, but we have become numb to it. And I think it's important to keep talking about it and to keep reminding folks what we're really dealing with and that we really do have a sexual predator who is the most powerful man in the country and possibly the world. Well, so I think it's important that these that these suits be brought and 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 be allowed to continue, and then um, so that we don't just sweep it under the rug and s- at least stand for something. Uh, I want to ask you a question that I know you didn't come in to talk about, but uh, you, you mentioned you're an Iranian American, right? Yes, yes. What is the feeling in the Iranian community in this country about Donald Trump's total hostile attitude toward Iran? Well, I, I think it's frightening. I, I think a lot of people are very concerned that that this has been a constant uh, drumbeat that's been going on for a long time and his friendship and alliance with Netanyahu, which, uh, you know, some could argue that he just helped him get reelected. Oh, totally. Right. Oh, and yeah. So, uh, I think he, by the way, what's striking to me on that point is that Trump did everything he could to help Netanyahu, and Netanyahu still almost barely lost, won, barely right. won. Yep. Yep. Yeah, but I think if, if he really did what Netanyahu wanted, he'd be we'd be at war in Iran. Yeah, and I, I, I still fear that that's a, that's a possibility, especially with the people that he surrounded himself with, like Pompeo and Bolton. And who John are, Bolton. Yeah, right. so I think that's, and, you know, tearing up the, uh, the Iran deal, which I think was, I think most people believe was, was a very important agreement that really and Iran was in compliance. They with. were completely in compliance, and he won't. So, and he they say they won't talk to anybody in Iran. They talk to uh, to uh, you know the the Korea the North Koreans, but they won't speak to the Iranians. Um, so I, I'm worried. I think a lot of Iranian Americans and Iranians are worried. And there are moderate elements. I mean, it, certainly there's still the America haters, right, and the leadership. But there's still there are moderate elements in in Iran who would like better relations with the United States and with the rest of the world that we could be reaching out to and maybe helping in some way. Absolutely. Right? I think that's right. I mean, it, there's, it, it's not a monolithic society. There is a lot of dissent. It is one of the most educated societies in the Middle East. A lot of very educated women, mm-hmm. uh, more women mm-hmm. are going to university in Iran than men now. I said, um, in many ways, right, Iran has a more enlightened government when it comes certainly for my, my understanding. I haven't been there. Friends have been there and, and loved the country, um, loved their visit there. But in terms of rights of women and education and entertainment and opportunities, 
a lot more than you see in some of the other Arab countries. In, in so, for example, like our friends in Saudi Arabia, our so-called friends in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, right. and it's still got a long way to go. I mean, it still is an oppressive um, theocracy. And, you know, they still are jailing uh, Americans, including journalists, as we remember with um, the mm -hmm. Washington Post journalist who was jailed for years in, in an mm -hmm. Iranian prison. So but there but there is dissent. There's powerful dissent there. And I, I think the thing that we should be doing is is supporting that dissent and engaging so that we can hopefully bring Iran into the community of nations. But uh, it, it appears that instead we're we're sort of moving in a, in a very slow direction towards conflict. I keep flashing back. I think the name, I read this wonderful book, I think it's called Reading Lolita in Tehran. Yes, yes. About a woman who basically organizes a reading a, group. A yeah. reading group of women in Iran and, and, and dealing with the, with the powers that be, you know, and defying yeah. them. And yeah, it was there, a great, there's been some great, great literature and some great filmmaking coming out of Iran recently, and they've, they've allowed those sorts of things to happen, which has been really quite nice. Well, keep up the good, front, the good fight on, on many fronts. Thanks so much, Bill. Uh, yeah, and thanks so much for coming on. How can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, yes, at H. Zavari. H. Zavari, and uh, that is, we'll put it up on our website, H. Z. A. V. A. R. E. E. I. Hassan Zavari. Goods consumer rights attorney, good luck with your case, and Thanks, uh, we'll see you again soon. Catch up with it. Let us know when it all comes to trial. You got it. And when we come back, uh, Ellen Nielsen joins us from Vox taking a look at 2020. Yep, back to politics in the next half hour here on this Wednesday edition of the Bill Press Show. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. You got it, April 10, uh, Wednesday, April 10, 2019. Here we are, the Bill Press Show. Welcome, welcome to the program, and it's great to see you, as always. We're here in our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., joining you everywhere in this great country of ours on the radio, online, and on television, and brought to you today by the International Association of Iron Workers, the good men and women of the Iron Workers Union, under President Eric Dean, they are building our communities today and ready to rebuild our infrastructure tomorrow whenever uh, Congress uh, gets its act together. We salute them, thank them for their support of the work, uh, for the support of the program, uh, and uh, check out their website, ironworkers.org. Uh, Ellen Nielsen joins us from Vox, just back from the trail up in New Hampshire. Uh, good to see you, Ella. Thanks good for coming in. Good to see you, in. too. Are people of New Hampshire, have they had it yet with 2020? Are they? <laughs> there are so many candidates there. I mean, I'm I'm from New Hampshire. I covered 2016, and it's just it's starting even earlier this year. So yeah, I it's I the obligatory first stop almost, right? <clears throat> Iowa yeah, and Iowa Hampshire. and then New Hampshire. But New Hampshire is such a small state that you just feel like you can't walk anywhere without stumbling into a presidential candidate. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's also true in Iowa. Right? Yeah, yeah, uh, and um, and. And I think, with all due respect to the people of New Hampshire, sure. I mean, you uh, you sort of feel this is our, we deserve all this attention, right? And you haven't the the old saw like, unless you've shaken the hand his or her hand five times, you wouldn't consider voting for them, right? And I I mean, when I was a, when I was still a newspaper reporter up in New Hampshire, we actually did because the the famous thing about New Hampshire voters is that they they most of them decide who they're going to vote for, especially with a big field like this like maybe in the last two weeks. So mm. we're all like speculating about like what, you know, especially so early, like who are they going to pick? Who, what's going to happen? But I don't think people are going to make up their minds for a long time. 
Well, that leads me to, there's an article, I must admit, I uh, in the front page of the New York Times today, which I find fascinating, but I haven't had a chance to really study yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can sum it up, tell me if I'm wrong, because you've had a chance to look at it too a little bit, is the gist of it is that if you just go by the noise on social media from Democrats, yeah. you would think that the Democratic Party en masse has swung totally to the left. It's all Bernie, all Elizabeth, right. right? And yet, if you look at the party, the whole party, and not just the people who are allowed on social media, that the the mass of the Democratic Party is really more toward the center. Yeah. Not right, but right. center left still, but more center left than left left. Right. Uh, and so it's the the loud ones, right, who are getting the attention and the noise. And that's not necessarily the reality of the party itself. If that's true, that could have a profound impact on who the nominee is. Right. I mean, especially, I mean, obviously, Joe Biden is near the front of the pack, even though he still hasn't announced. But the other front runner he, is, he is, is Bernie. Front of the pack. Yeah, yeah. But the other front runner is Bernie Sanders. Um, and, you know, he is arguably the candidate that's the most to the left. Um, but, you know, he has and he has he has the, the big advantage of name recognition that a lot of the other, these other candidates don't have. Um, but, yeah, I think that, um, like you said, you know, we can see this in, in 2018. I mean, when we were covering the midterms in 2018, one of the things that we were really interested in as a newsroom where are how are these really left progressive candidates going to do in midwestern states you know sort of these red to blue districts and we sort of saw throughout the the campaign that that really wasn't the the narrative that was emerging obviously the big narrative was mm-hmm. women candidates doing well um but i think that you know 2018 showed us that moderate democrats can win elections yeah, right. uh, and and do. So I, I think that you're right. And I think that this article, I haven't read the whole thing, but I'm, I'm interested to. I think that Twitter is kind of this bubble for journalists and activists and politicians. And you're right. It's the loudest voices are the ones that get, get amplified. But it's uh, not always real life. One that just uh, one sentence that struck out to me is that the outspoken group of Democratic leaning voters on social media Mm -hmm. and they would be, I think, a lot of the viewers and listeners to this show, (laughs) as well as the Bernie supporters and the Beto supporters, that the outspoken group of Democratic leaning voters on social media is outnumbered two to one by the more moderate, more diverse, and less educated group of Democrats who typically don't post their political content online. Right. Two to one. Right. The silent uh, majority, if you will. <laughs> that, yeah, I think I haven't had that phrase for a while. Yeah. But I would say that would give hope to someone like a Joe Biden mm-hmm. or a Cory Booker or an Amy Klobuchar, right? right. Let's say it's among others, yeah. more moderate candidates. Or a Pete, P- Pete Buttigieg, or a perhaps. Pete, or perhaps a Pete <laughs> Buttigieg, right, yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, she was um, up last night on yes. CNN, yep. uh, her her town meeting. Uh, did you have a chance to watch it? How did you do? I did. Uh, yeah, I was covering that last night, stayed up uh, stayed up late to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I mean, Gillibrand, I think, you know, she was one of the first to announce that she was running yep. or forming an exploratory committee and then, you know, making making it official. 
Um, but I think that that more, even more than a lot of her other Senate colleagues, I think she's sort of struggled to break through, especially as this field has just grown to this massive size. Um, I mean, she, right now in national polls, she's at a, around one percent. That's about the same as someone like Andrew Yang or or a little bit more than John Hickenlooper. Um, so I think last night was sort of her chance to kind of you know show show herself to a national audience. The CNN town hall format has has launched candidates like like Pete Buttigieg, who is the mayor of mm-hmm. South Bend, Indiana. Um, and it was interesting. I, I think she a, a, a theme that I I noticed was that voters wanted her to talk about her past moderate to conservative positions that she had when she was a, a House member from right. a kind of moderate district in New York. So she had an you know an A rating from the NRA. Um, she was more conservative on on immigration when she was a House member, um, and and on healthcare, right. and it, it kind of asking her to square those past stances with these much more progressive positions that she staked out. Yeah, here in speaking of immigration, uh, as you said, that's one of the issues that came up. Getting a question from the audience about um, not happy with her past position. So immigration was arguably arguably the defining issue of the 2016 election. It could very well be the same in 2020. Um, you have previously been a hardliner on immigration. You have supported making uh, declaring English as the official language of the United States, as well as cracking down on sanctuary cities. Uh, when you're running against a xenophobic demagogue like Donald Trump, how can you stand firm with the shaky record that you have on immigration? Uh, it's a tough question yeah. and a well-thought-out question. Uh, it, it does amaze me sometimes. People really are into these issues. Um, and her, her response. We've never, or at least in our best moments, have not been afraid of immigrants. Um, I think what President Trump is doing is outrageous. I think when he divides uh, children and their parents at the border, it's not only inhumane, but it's contrary to who we are as a country. Uh, As President of the United States, I would not only work to pass comprehensive immigration reform, but I would change entirely what we do at the border. And she also indicated that she's grown in that issue, right? And a number of other issues. Yeah, I mean, she basically said, I mean, she said she, on on this and and a few other things, she said, I was wrong in the past. I once I became a senator, I, you know, sort of took a look at the the constituency of my entire state rather than just this district and realized that I, um, you know, had constituents that were impacted by this, that were impacted by hardline immigration policies. And I, you know, I've I've evolved on this issue, essentially. Right. Um, I, I should have asked you uh, uh, and I back to New Hampshire for just a moment. Sure. Did you get any sense of who the favorites are up there at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think that Sanders is is the. I mean, I wouldn't say that New Hampshire is his state to lose, but obviously he defied expectations in 2016 and and kind of had this resounding win. You know, it wasn't just like he yeah, he didn't yeah. just inch so, past Clinton. It was a it was a very very uh, sure win. And it's his backyard, right? It's his backyard. It's also Elizabeth Warren's backyard. Um, mm-hmm. So I think Good that point. that the that the consensus is that. That is really New Hampshire is sort of the battleground state for those two. And if one of them doesn't win New Hampshire or or doesn't come in a strong second place finish in New Hampshire, that could seriously um, hurt Mm. their their candidacy. Right. On that point, it does. It seems to me that Elizabeth Warren's big challenge. Let's see if you agree is Bernie. I mean, is beating Bernie Sanders. Yeah. At at a certain point, that lane is going to be occupied by one of them. 
and and her I think her case she has to make the case that I'm as liberal as Bernie I've got new ideas adding to Bernie's ideas too uh, and uh, you know I'm better to represent that lane than he is even though he was the first one there right. four years ago. Yeah, and the thing that's really interesting to me is, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that they are both sort of going for the same base of supporters. And she's been rolling out all of these incredibly detailed policy positions yeah, on things like- more than anybody else. Right? Far more than anyone else on things like housing and and healthcare, you know, um, certainly financial regulation and taxes. Um, she has all these ideas, but I really think that- um, that people are concerned. I mean, this whole electability factor, and I don't know if this is tinged with with sexism or not. Um, but yeah, people people are also it, constantly in everyone's minds is who can beat Trump in a general election. That's um, the, that's the number one question. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so the other person, the person that you mentioned a little earlier, who is certainly, as we say, having a moment. Yes. Is uh, Mayor Pete. Yes. Pete Buttigieg. Um, can it last? That's an excellent question. I don't know. Um, I I mean, certainly, you know, the the term that I that I hear from a bunch of political science experts is, you know, the flavor of the month candidate, and you know, he's he is having his month. Um, but I don't know. I think that he. I it seems to me that he is a candidate that could potentially have you know last longer than the month. Um, you know, he's young. He he has an interesting background. Um, he's openly gay. Um, he is he is from you know this this uh, kind of smaller city in in Middle America in Indiana, uh, and I I do think that he is sort of you know this kind of fresh face that that people are looking for, um, and it, you know it, it it will be interesting to me if he can I think that people really feel like he is a genuine candidate from what I have heard, um, but it's it's going to be interesting to me again you know he's he's one in in eighteen candidates right now so um, there is. Uh, big potential for for his star to potentially fade and someone else to rise, but um, he is he is having this moment early, uh, so things could look very different, you know, in in December right before the primaries. But and we'll everybody see. has their issue, yeah. Right? What has emerged as the one that Pete Buttigieg seems to be getting a lot of traction on is his back and forth with Mike Pence or his poking at Mike Pence, fellow Hoosier. Yes. Over. Um, what faith is all about, what Christianity is all about. If I, I just want to play, he, he he did this again yesterday. This is sort again. of a, an ongoing thing that he, this is a fight he wanted to pick, but he commented right. on it again yesterday about why it's sort of taken hold. You know, I think people are responding to it because hopefully it's a reminder that all of us deserve an equal claim on the blessings of life in this country. And just because you're LGBTQ doesn't mean it's okay to discriminate against you. I think most people get that. I think most Christians get that. And uh, it's time for us to move on toward a more inclusive and more humane vision of faith than what this vice president represents. Uh, yeah, and he said uh, fa- famously at the uh, at the victory brunch on Sunday, you know, Mike Pence, if you've got a problem with my being gay, you know, your quarrels with it, uh, not with me, it's with the, my creator. Right, yeah. Right. And I think that this conversation that that around around, you know, faith on the left is kind of that, you know, maybe started with Buttigieg. I mean, Gillibrand was asked about her faith last night at the CNN town hall. So it's something that is is sort of being talked about in a way that I certainly didn't hear in 2016. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. Yeah. And he's injected it in a sense of becoming almost the spokesperson for the religious left, if you will. Right. Where Pence has definitely... Uh, tried to claim the mantle of the new leader of the religious right and the evangelicals. And, mm-hmm. and 
Uh, and then Buddha judge, I think, either at that victory runter before, said something about he finds it strange that Mike Pence and the evangelicals would lift up somebody who's been paying, making hush payments to porn stars as the, the model that they ought to be following. Right. Yeah. I certainly think that all sort of the, this baggage that comes along with the Trump administration and the fact that Mike Pence is the vice president makes it easy for, you know, someone who's young, who kind of has this untarnished record like Buttigieg to to come and sort of reclaim this this idea on the left. Right. Um, there are reports. I don't know whether you sense it or not or have, have, have your reporting has, has shown that or not, that Beto O'Rourke has kind of leveled off, mm -hmm. right? That the the rocket didn't right. continue to soar into the stratosphere. Right. Uh, that's more become a slog, you know, than a, than a meteor rising. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of too early to tell for sure. Um, but He still raised a lot of money. I mean, he still raised a him, ton of, yeah, exactly. credit for that, yeah. Um, and I think that there is still interest in, in, in you know, there's, there's interest. I don't know if there's like as much enthusiasm um, as there was, you know, certainly around the the midterms or even just, a, you know, a month ago. But I think that people are uh, very interested to see what he does. Um, I, I do think that he is not being talked about as much as he was a few weeks ago. Well, you know, you got to say it's um, it's a lot different running against 17 others. Yes. Than running against the most hated man in the United States Senate. Absolutely. It's uh, that very was a different. national cause, right? Mm -hmm. To get rid of Ted Cruz. That was, I think, as much about getting rid of Ted Cruz as helping Beto O'Rourke, right? Right, absolutely. And I do think that, that one of O'Rourke's things different. that is, is problematic and that has come up is that. You know, his, his just his record in Congress isn't that isn't that long, and people don't really entirely know what he stands for because he's kind of shifted stances on Medicare for all, single payer. Um, so, you know, if if you do that, it's it's kind of uh, confusing to voters. Right. Uh, so we're now at eighteen. Any more getting in? So uh, we got. Let's not forget we had Eric Swalwell. Eric Swalwell, yes. Week. Uh, so the other people that could potentially get in, um, you know, former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, potentially uh, Congressman Seth Moulton, who famously uh, is one of I Nancy Pelosi's opponents. Yes. Um, and Steve then Bullock from Montana. Yeah. Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana. Um, I'm trying to remember who else. I feel like that's most of them. Well, there's a former vice president. Oh, yes. Oh, and then how could I forget? How could I forget Joe Biden? Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really interested to see what he does, you know, with these sort of latest, you know, this latest round of, you know, Me Too or inappropriate uh, touching allegations. Um yeah, I, I feel like the longer the longer he waits, the more skeptical that I am. Um, but I think that he is I, I feel like he what I've heard is that he's still going to jump in. But um, it is interesting to see this process get dragged. All, out. all signs said April. He was going to make an announcement in right. April. Right. Right. OK. Here we are. <laughs> April 10. Um, he uh, the political poll I'm sure you saw yesterday show that even after a week of those stories. Yeah. Um, and let's face it, his sort of stumbling to come up with the right answer for a few days uh, that he still led in the polls. I mean, and come, let's go back to this New York Times story. Right. Maybe that's why. But still led in the polls, even though he's not in yet. Yeah. Uh, and was 
that yesterday's Politico morning console poll is nine points ahead of Bernie. Sure. But I mean, I do, I do think that the thing. There is an affection for Joe Biden. And I think a sense also that you need somebody who's solid, you know, not in the middle necessarily, but a little left of the middle and, and with all that experience and. Yeah, I do think that that though the thing to keep in mind about these early polls again because it is so early, um, it is just that I I do think that a lot of it has to do with with name recognition and and you know who who people are familiar with. So I think that uh, you know the dynamic could could certainly change uh, between now and and February. Uh, it seems to me too that don't you think these debates are going to be particularly the first couple of debates are going to be particularly important. I think so. And it's going to be interesting to see the formatting just because there are so many candidates. I mean, I remember covering some of the Republican debates in 2016, and it was just kind of like this, you know, insane uh, kind of free for all. And yeah, it's it's going to be the same thing. But I think that the ideas are going to be interesting. I am just like curious to see literally how much like airtime each person gets. And I think that there will be a chance for somebody to kind of emerge as kind of the clear uh, winner through some of these debates. They did say that there will be, so we know the we know the, the rules. You have to have the 1% in at least three polls. You have to have 65,000 donors minimum yes. from 20 states. Um, and we also know that some of the, um, some of the people who we might consider lesser known, can, certainly are lesser known, like yeah. Andrew Yang, who's yes. been in the studio with us. He he claims he's got it. I think Pete Pete Buttigieg is there, right? Oh, for sure, Buttigieg definitely. Yeah, and I th- I do think that like Andrew Yang so, has this weird base of online supporters. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it seems like he does have the money. Uh, and and uh, you know he is at one percent. Uh, in in national polls, so that could be enough. Right. Um, and the way they're going to do it is they're going to be two nights in a row mm-hmm. uh, with they said a total of twenty candidates. Um, no more than that. So that's 10 each night, and not all the big stars are going to be on one night, right? Yeah. So you'll want to stay tuned. I'm, look, if it's, I've said this before, but if it's Joe, if Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are both in, they'll have Bernie on one night and Joe on another night. Right, right. Got to keep those ratings up. They say it's <laughs> going to be totally random. It's not going to be totally <laughs> random. It can't be totally random. We don't want it to be totally random. Yeah. You don't want like the Republican thing with all the so-called stars on one night and right. the lesser ones down below, right? So um, so how they mix that up, I think, is going to be fascinating. But this is going to be the first opportunity for all of us to see m- s- most of these candidates for the first time. Yeah. Even like, you know, Gillibrand or Amy Klobuchar, they've been in the Senate, but we haven't seen them in this political context, right? No, really? I don't think so. And and also because so many of them have sort of staked out progressive positions to kind of have to go against each other and kind yeah. of find these yeah. areas where they are different. Right. Like, let's take Medicare for all. Sure. By the way, Bernie Sanders is introducing his Medicare for all plan today, today yeah. I understand. Mm-hmm. And he also said yesterday that on Monday, April 15, he is going to release... 10 years of tax return. Right, which is a long-awaited thing. Yeah. And Peter, did you see Bernie Sanders admitted yesterday that he has now joined the ranks of millionaires? I saw that. That's uh, because- I wrote a book. Of course I'm a millionaire. He got that He got that <laughs> big uh, big uh, advance for his first and second book. Yeah, you know, it's going to be really yeah. interesting to see how that plays, he right? He found that very embarrassing to have yeah. to admit that he's a millionaire. 
It's, it's going to be because I think they're going to make him out to be, you know, some sort of a hypocrite because he's coming out against millionaires and billionaires. And it's yeah, there's a big difference between being someone who has that kind of money and like Bernie money. Uh, t- totally. For the first time at the age of, what is he, 76? Yeah, I don't yeah, know, yeah. Well, he's up there. Yeah, that he got a, a book a book advance and made it over that, yeah. He's hardly in the class of uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates yeah, right. Right? <laughs> or Michael Bloomberg. And by the way, he's still probably one of the poorest members of the U.S. Senate. I don't know for sure, but it's possible. Yeah. Uh, there's some people there who are very, very, very rich, yes. Very, very wealthy. Uh, so uh, if you had to guess now, I, I'd guess at least that Mar- Marianne Williamson and Tulsi Gabbard are not going to be on stage. I don't think, yeah, I don't think that Tulsi Gabbard will be. It was interesting because when I was back at uh, the University of New Hampshire last week, uh, Tulsi Gabbard had visited and and her dis- her visit didn't even make the front page of the student newspaper. Whoa. It was like really? buried on page 10. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think so. It seems like her campaign isn't really going anywhere. And I don't know how many like staff staff members she has at this point. I'm not sure Eric Swalwell getting in this late, you know, yeah. will we'll, we'll make the stage. Right. Somebody like Swalwell or or. Seth Moulton, um, you know, Tim Ryan also got in recently. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a number, there are sort of a number of, of candidates that are just very similar, uh, kind of these young, younger white guys uh, in the House or, or uh, you know, governors. Um, Jay Inslee obviously is kind of running and, you know, very focused on climate change. So that could potentially be interesting. Among, um, among the governors who are in, I think he's the strongest and the most interesting and yeah. has the best platform. By the way, so CNN is continuing its town halls, we should mention. It is, yes. We really want to see these candidates. I think these are good forums for them to have. Uh, Kirsten Gentleman, last night, you missed that. I'm sure you can still watch it. But Jay Inslee is tonight with Wolf Blitzer uh, interviewing him. And tomorrow night is a doubleheader of Marianne Williamson, mm-hmm. aforementioned, and um, Andrew Yang. Yes. It should be interesting. The yeah, very interesting. Very, very different. And uh, Bernie's, I don't know if they have a date yet, but Bernie's uh, town hall coming up on Fox News. Yeah, that should be quite the one to watch. He's going to take the message to Fox, right? <laughs> the den of the lions. Uh, it's great to see you. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks you for having me. You follow work, of course, on Fox at Fox.com. Wednesday, that's it for us. The rest of the day is all yours. We'll this see you again tomorrow. This is the Bill on- Press Show.